Welcome to the Paranormal Journal sponsored by the Harrisburg Area Paranormal Society. The opinions voiced on this show are based on the host and his personal experiences and research into the supernatural. All opinions are just that, opinions. So sit back and enjoy. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Paranormal Journal. I'm your host, John Curley, and tonight's special guest, Dr. Barry Taff. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Barry Taff. I will be talking with him extensively tonight about some of his most famous cases. One, the entity back in 1974 that they made a movie about in 1983 called The Entity. And I'm definitely going to be talking about the San Pedro haunting. I've always wanted to talk about this case with him. I've never got a chance to talk to him about it yet, but tonight I'm going to talk to him about it. And I want to hear his take on everything that happened with that case. So stay tuned, folks. This is going to be a good one. Getting ready to get Dr. Taff on the hook. And we are going to talk paranormal shop tonight, folks. Stay tuned. Hey, Dr. Taff. It's John. How you doing? How you doing? Pretty good. How you doing? Good, good. Uh, thanks for coming on the show tonight, Dr. Taff. I oh, appreciate it. my pleasure. It. Can't wait to talk to you about some of these the, uh, investigations you've done over the years, mm-hmm. which have, you know. But, but you know what's important? Here's what's really important. That I've everything I expected to learn way back when. I didn't learn. Everything I'd never thought about turned out to be true. It came front. And the evidence, the theories that have come forward based on my 53 years of work are very dramatic because they're very consistent and they're demonstrative. Things that, I mean, you know, if, you, if someone told me in 1968 or 9 that this is all an, a product of living human minds interacting with the environment that trigger these events, I'd go like, what? And the people that trigger them are mostly seizure prone or epileptic. I go, what are you talking about? And now we know that's true. So this is the uh, the primary parameter. Turns out to be people who have neurochemical problems. That's crazy. And if they're in the right environment, boom. <clears throat> and I'll start, once we record, I want to start by coming, letting people, making people think of a certain image that'll make it clear what I'm saying as the show goes on. Yeah. Definitely, because, right. you know, over the years, of I've been investigating for 20 years, and mm-hmm. I definitely noticed uh, by reading a lot of your stuff that I have noticed that a lot of these cases are evolved around an individual. It's not a location. Right. It's not like a haunting. It's it's a person that's right. producing the phenomena. Right. But you know? they're at the same time, it's a, it's a confluence, meaning you need the right person in the right environment and the right conditions, and wow. Yeah. So it, the basic bottom line is, let's look at the most haunted place on Earth, wherever that happens to be. Whatever. It doesn't matter where it is. And over the course of a year, 100,000 people go through it. 99.9999% that go the read about it, that go visit it, you know, and they leave. But then that one very special, uncommon individual comes through there. And when they're in there, all hell breaks loose. Things happen. Because they're acting as an what I call a biological operational amplifier. They're present, mediate triggers, and mediate the event. And knowing this, we can artificially trigger it, but we run the risk of hurting or killing people, which, of course, we can't do. Yeah, exactly. And in so, the in the uh, San Pedro case, I've been I've been looking at that a lot, and there was it's mad lots of so much poltergeist activity, and right. I. Did see parts of things where you were saying that 
she was producing a lot of the phenomena in that case. Uh, yeah, I mean, my guess is, from what I saw of her and knew of her, that it's all, again, if you look at the focal point of uh, in these cases, a usually a woman, it could be a man, um, if you look at their behavior and their hip medical history and whatever, like in the entity case, 1974-76, if Doris Bither had allowed us to subject her to detailed medical workup, I guarantee you would have found that she's up with epileptic or seizure prone. But she wouldn't even give us her age. Wow. I wouldn't, here's what I want to start off with. So people are going to, let's say you're holding a DVD in your hand. You want to watch the DVD. What do you need? Well, you first need a DVD player that works. You've got to plug that in the wall. Then you need a television that the player is connected to and the player and the television is also plugged in the wall. You need, need a remote. Then you need someone to put the disc in the DVD and make it play. If any one of that ensemble, any part of that ensemble is missing, there will be nothing on your screen. And this is what we apparently are running into in this phenomena, poltergeist activity, that it's a confluence, not one thing, and not dead people floating around. I'm not discounting the possibility that hauntings are real, because there are cases in my files, they're few and far between, and to other people's files throughout you know, the last century or so, that have far, that far more suggest that some form of disembodied consciousness may exist. You can't prove it, you can't disprove it. However, okay, the bottom line with all this seems to be uh, a very unique individual. The individual that has the stuff going on around them. Um, generally, I'd say there's a 98 to 99% probability that that individual is either seizure prone or epileptic. Now, a lot of people are seizure prone, but they never know it unless they've been kindled to the point of having a seizure. I have a friend, he's a writer, producer, known him for decades, and uh, he didn't know he was epileptic until he was. He saw a movie, um, oh, the last film that Natalie Wood made, Brainstorm. And there's a scene in there with flashing red lights where the researcher has, starts having a seizure. And my friend was in the movie watching it, and he suddenly had a seizure. Oh, wow. And he learned, my God, he's epileptic. So this is not that uh, unusual. But, okay, so the person's tend to be either seizure-prone or epileptic. Then they have to be hypersensitive to electromagnetic or geomagnetic forces. Then they must have a very weak ability to deal with stress. And then there's something what I call inductive resonance coupling. And that's where the individual's nervous system that's in that environment must be in resonance with the magnetic flux in that environment. If there is a coupling between the two, then phenomena may occur. Now, this is where it gets really strange. While the majority, if not all, of poltergeist agents, whether male or female, tall or short, thin or fat, young or old, tend to be polter, uh, tend to be seizure-prone or epileptic. People who are epileptic or seizure-prone, most of them are not poltergeist agents, which means that we're, there's an unknown or missing variable between one or the other. And we don't know what that is, nor does anyone else. Um, there is technology to study this at greater greater depth, but it's the medical it's all medical science, neuro, neuroscience basically. And if any medical doctor got involved with this, they'd lose their job. 
because it's still politically incorrect. Yeah. So <clears throat> let's let me give you a recent case that demonstrates how incredibly blatant this stuff can be. I almost died in 2015. I want four readers with that. I've talked about it enough. I got real sick. I was in the hospital for more than a month. I was in nursing homes for almost two years. It's a long story. I'm out of it now, thankfully, and I've recovered. But so I came out of the last nursing or, ho or hospital. I know where to go because I gave up my place in L.A. And, uh, you know, when we almost dead, what do I need an apartment for? Yeah, so I, really. gave, I gave that up. I had to sell my car. So I went to live with an old friend who I've known for about 20 years, but I didn't know him that well. How could I? He was he was an acquaintance. We worked together, not in parapsychology, but in, in electronic sort of thing, computer stuff. So went to stay with him. Beautiful home in Rancho Mirage. I'd never been there. His mother was very old, was in a nursing home. So he was there and I was there. I had my bedroom, he had his bedroom. His mother's bedroom was empty. And uh, so I move in. Five days after I'm there, my friend is out playing pool. I'm on the couch watching television. And I hear a woman's voice to my left call my name. I jumped off the couch like someone shot me in the ass with a BB gun. <laughs> um, there was no one in the house other than me. My friend was miles away. So who, uh, who called my name? It started then, and it evolved over the next few months. And I moved to this house April 17th. 2017, and uh, the things that went on there, disembodied voices, luminous anomalies, machines turning on and off, things moving, a porting from one part of the house to another. One point at, at uh, 2.40 in the morning, I hear a woman's voice screaming the name Mikey. Who's Mikey? My friend's name was Brent. My name is Barry. Mike, what's Mikey? Okay, so even we were moving from that house in November 2017 to another house. They're packing up to leave. The movers are there. My back started to hurt because I pulled something too hard and I bent over. I was just laying on the carpet in the living room. And I'm hearing a conversation going on, I thought, in the kitchen. I go to the kitchen. There's no one there. Then I hear it in the back bedroom. I run back there. There's no one there. And then I lay down on the, on the, you know, on the floor to get my back relaxed. I hear the conversation again. Now, this is what was happening. And why? Why, before I moved in, nothing paranormal had happened in the house. Nothing. So we moved from Rancho Barrage to Palm Desert. It was a beautiful home, larger, quieter, very, very nice place. They had a pool, a whole bit. Um, so we're there, and months go by, and nothing happens. It's great. Bigger bedroom, easier to set up my computer and my desk, all that. Okay, great. So things start happening then, about five, six months into it. Um, luminous anomalies, rooms lighting up from no source of light. People talking when there is no one there. Like there's a party going on, hear conversations, you know, disembodied voices, machines turned on by themselves, the washer dryer turned on. Um, and the most blatant thing was, um, anyway, so on this one, I was in the kitchen talking with my friend once, and this dog was there, and the dog some, on the stovetop, the countertop behind me, the stove wasn't even on. There was some empty pots or pans on there. They were just resting there. And they started bouncing around on their own, although nothing was touching them. And the dog saw, the dog started to growl. 
because you know there's nothing making it. Why are these things moving? And then another time, we're in the kitchen, and uh, there's a big flash of light from the dining room, but no one's there, and there's no source of light. Um, another time, this dog, his dog, in my friend's bedroom on the one end of the house, is growling at the door opening as if the dog sees something that we can't see. I run there, nothing. You know, the dog finally stops. So all my instruments are at a friend's house in Los Angeles. So the only thing I had was a pair of night vision goggles. So I put them on, <clears throat> nothing, uh, whatever. So I turn them off and going back to my bedroom. And uh, as I walk in the hallway, he, I'm by myself. My friend has not left his bedroom. I clearly feel a hand with fingers going through my hair. Oh, wow. But, and I jump and, you know, anyway. And then um, another incident happened in uh, 2019 where I, I woke up and I usually sleep on my side as opposed to my back. So I woke up in the middle of the night, like 3.30, and my right cheek was what felt like it was resting on the pillow, but it felt a little odd for a pillow. It's something weird. So I opened my eyes and I realized there's something in bed next to me. And it's a woman. Except mm -hmm. I went to bed alone. I don't have a girlfriend. Didn't then, don't now. That's not important. But I don't, I look <clears throat> younger than me, long reddish brown hair, and uh, high brow ridge, thin nose, can't see the eye color, can high cheekbones, bone mouth, tapered jaw, but I can't recognize it. There's not enough light. And I'm going, what the hell? And I jump. What are you, what are you doing? What, what's, and, and, I try to reach over her to turn the left on my one of the nightstands next to my uh, bed. There's a lamp. I went to turn it on, and then the image said, "Don't turn the light on! Don't turn the light on!" I go, "What?" And I had to reach over her because there was a mass. Her body's mass was between me and the lamp. So I turn the lights on. There's nothing there. Whoa. Okay. Now a year goes by. It was uh, July of 2020. And I get some woman who gets hold of me on Facebook. You sell your friend Linda wanted to know where you were. Here, here's her number. Give her a call. So I called her. Now, Linda and I used to live together in Brentwood to uh, 1985 to 87. And when she was young, she looked a lot like a young Selma Hayek. Very similar look. Oh, wow. So anyway, yeah. yeah. So, you know, we're uh, the girl, I, I called the girl Linda. And I said, why did you call me? She said, well, you, I don't know. You, your phone number was gone. I went to your place in L.A. You weren't there. Someone else was living there. And so, okay. She said, but what made me reach out to you this time was last year, I woke up in bed and you were next to me. Whoa. What? Now, I didn't, I haven't seen her in 10 years. So I don't know what she looks like. Well, she has really long hair now, reddish brown versus just dark brown. More reddish, actually. And um, she said, she saw me next. Suddenly, I'm next to her. And she said, what? And then I was reaching over her, and she didn't want me to. And she said, no. It's exactly what I experienced in um, Desert when she was in West Los Angeles. Well, that's crazy. So, yeah. Then, well, let's go on to the, the most, the, the two last events. Well, two final ones for this discussion. Um, uh Sometime later in 2019, um, I wake up in the middle of the night and my un right underside of my right arm was burning really bad and hurt. 
and that's what woke me up. And I get up and I look to my right and there's three diminutive humanoids. They're not human, like rays, you know. Like aliens, but, like... And they're pulling something like a needle out of my underside of my right arm. Like, what? What? what and they realize I'm awake and they sort of bounce off each other. Right? They turn and go right through the desk to the wall. They're gone. The room had a disgusting odor of hydrogen sulfide. I don't know where that came from. And, uh, okay. So, those are, now this is the tip of the iceberg. There are many more, but it will take up the whole show. Um, a couple of months before we moved, no, about a year before we moved, 2021, I'm in the kitchen. My friend yells, Oh, I left some medication on the island of the kitchen. Bring it back to me. Okay. So, I'm in the kitchen. So, I don't remember the name of the medication, but I remember what it was used for. It's an anticonvulsant. And I said uh, to my friend, what are you taking this for? I have these, you know, focal seizures, these spasms in my muscles. And I went, well, you explain why things are happening. He goes, what? I go, you're seizure prone. Yeah. You didn't ever, he didn't want to, just sort of forgot about it. So, no, so he was the power supply and I was the focal plane or the lens. Wow. If I, him alone, nothing happened. Me alone, really, nothing happened until I stopped working at, on the CL Drive case. But it is odd that we lived together from uh, April 2017 through late June of 2021, and just constant things going on. Of course, he's the supplier of the energy, and I'm the lens. Wow. It's kind of so, like... See that? This is... Go ahead. Go ahead. It's kind of like... Uh touching like a positive and a negative wire together and making that spark like boom you know and then this activity happens right kind of something it, like it, that well a little more than that it's like if you have a bright type of a static generator like a, a tesla coil or whatever or the other you get it near a fluorescent tube the fluorescent tube might glow because the energy is picked up induction goes through the air and it causes the coil and the, 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 the things in in the tube to emit light as they rotate. Light is produced when electrons jump from higher to lower orbits and atoms. That results as a photon. And the question is, what's producing light in these cases? Um, the whole, what it comes down to is rather simple. Um, again, think of the, you want to watch your DVD, what do you need? You must link up with the system involved in the right environment. And if you're sensitive and you're a match for that particular resonance frequency, things might happen. Induction, like an induction coil. Um, it's, let's go back to, let's see, the, the entity case, 1974-76. Um, my colleague at the time, Carrie Gaynor, was in Hunter's Books at Westwood, which they actually used. It was still open when they made the movie. And uh, he was in there talking about our work with a friend. And in the next aisle was a woman named Doris Byther with one of her friends. And she just talked to Carrie going, uh, my house is haunted. Okay, give me your name and number. We'll come out and see you. So I call her. About a week later, we go out to her house on Braddock Drive in Culver City. And a little bungalow, in really bad shape. It was condemned several times by the city. Small, petite woman, a little bigger than me. Um, 
and she had four children, each from a different man. The house was in ruin. Um, we never met her youngest child, which was a girl, but we met her three boys. It was an elder teenager and two younger ones. And go in there, and the house was really hot. So very warm summer, very humid. And the house felt like you were in a sauna. And uh, yet, you know, it was still air conditioning. Right, the house was standing, we're such bad shape. And the terrible odor of decomposing organic matter, terrible. And we, so for the first thing she says to us is, oh, I've been raped by a ghost. And we went, oh my God. And we rolled our eyes back and thought, <laughs> woman's psychotic and she needs psychiatric intervention. There's, there's not any parapsychology to help. So we talked with her, blah, blah, blah. We left and we referred her to some people at UCLA, which she never followed up on. So about a week or so later, she called. She said a friend and a neighbor had witnessed stuff. Okay, go back to the house. It's at night, and uh, her three boys are there. Uh, her young daughter isn't, which is good. She didn't need to be exposed to this sort of thing. And we're in the kitchen talking to her, and a lower cupboard door swings open, and a frying pan flies out of the, out of the cupboard and lands on the floor. So we checked to see if there were wires in there or springs or animals or a child or something they could make that, you know, hand fly out. There wasn't. Then it began evolving where it seemed to be focused in the bedroom, horrible stench, and evolved into a case where we were seeing these weird lights around the house, like lime green in color, like cor what I called corpuscular masses, like in the lava lamps of the 60s and 70s, always that same color. Now, now, she made very dramatic claims. We couldn't prove them because, you know, she's a mature woman and she's had four children, so we couldn't prove that she was raped or not raped. How could you prove something that happened like that if it happened many months ago? So the case evolved when we began seeing these lights and we thought, well, we've got to seal the house off from external lighting. So we covered, it was all in her bedroom, covered the the, the uh, windows with black poster boards so the light would get in. And then we did record one ball of light, which is in my book and on my website. It looks like a comet. You can see a tail behind it. And, uh, but we had no way to determine its speed and what direction it was moving from what, what end to the other end. It was, it was all, there's no reference. So we covered her walls in her bedroom with poster boards and her ceiling. So every board had a number on it and a magnetic orientation. And the boards were stuck together and put on the wall with duct tape. So it looked like a giant grid pattern. So we still had trouble getting photographs. And at one point, um, the uh, lights, these lime green balls of light, Three-dimensional, they weren't flat. They coalesced to the corner of the room where Doris uh, Lee slept. And uh, they formed the operation of a very large man, well over six feet. See the head, the brow ridge, the jaw, the upper torso, the shoulders, the pectoral, the biceps. And it, it went down to about the waist and it cut off there. And it was, it, was, uh, it was articulating, it wasn't frozen, moving. And what then, it was one, two, gone. Pretty amazing. So we already had several professional photographers with us with high-end cameras. 
and they fired many shots. Nope. Now one photo came through, which makes no sense because the image was very bright. Yeah, that's but crazy. What we did, but what we did catch is on my website in my book is Doris is on a little bed and she's cowering under something, and it's a arc of light that is framing her. It goes from the bottom arc over her, goes to the to the bottom of the frame as well, and like what? Um, we never saw that, but and what's interesting in the yard, if one looks at it carefully, is that behind it, two walls of the bedroom meet at a 90-degree angle or perpendicular to each other. So if this was a projected source of light against the wall, it would be bent in the course with the wall, yeah. but it's not, which means the light was in free space. That's but incredible. what's the cause of it? Um, I suspect that we've been shooting faster after shutter speed, we might have captured a ball rather than getting, you know, if you're taking pictures of stars at night with a telescope and it's in a prolonged exposure, you get a track of light. Well, this is what maybe happened, happened here. It was moving so quickly that we shot, it was too long of an exposure. And instead of seeing the ball, we were seeing the full arc as it went from one point to the other. And also on the, on the left of the arc, you can see another arc, but it's much smaller, less less luminous than the other. Now, earlier this year, the Skeptical Inquirer did an article debunking the entity case. And I didn't respond directly because I don't care what people say. They weren't there. We were. Um, and I love the way people pontificate about something they know nothing about. They weren't there. That the writers of the article articles were just little kids. When the case happened. So how? But, but what? They don't. You know, it's great. Um, they claim that the arcs of light we got were actually hair follicles floating in the air. What? <laughs> yeah, hair follicles. And they just happened to frame Doris. Oh, well, of course. We were feeding into the frenzy by lying to her. Yeah, right, right. Now there's another. There, um, there's another frame. Um, there's another frame. Um, uh, uh, Doris is not even in the shot. They in the taken in the bedroom again, and you see two arcs: one going bottom to bottom, the other from top to top. Um, yeah, and Doris wasn't even in the shot. Yeah, so the question amazing. is, what was the source of the lights? We never saw the arc; we just saw balls of light. But again, what's the source? So we put up the poster board showed nothing. It didn't produce a result. So we're back in her bedroom again. And this is a, a, my chapter in my book. I think chapter two is on the entity case. Um, I discussed the case in great detail. It would take many hours to go over. Yeah, I've read it. And um, yeah. And so the the whole point of it is that we couldn't prove or disprove anything except we're in a bedroom and suddenly these lights are zipping around and Carrie asked it to do something. And suddenly duct tape was pulled off of one of the boards. The boards flew across this little bedroom and hit Doris in the head. Whoa. And then another, Carrie said, do something again. And again, duct tape pulled off another board. It flew off uh, the wall or I think it was the ceiling and it fell close to me, but it didn't hit me. Okay, that was pretty dramatic. And then a few days later, 
get a call from Doris and come back to her house at like one in the morning and something had torn off all the poster boards on the wall and the ceiling. It also took the plaster and paint with it. Jesus. Now she was a little lady. So she could have had it would have get up on a ladder to get them off the ceiling. Do I think she tore them off to get her attention? No. Can I prove that? No, but this is what I suspect. But you know, we if if this was today in this type of case, we've had more instrumentation obviously to work with, rather than just cameras shooting at a high you know, pushing truck Kodak Triax to a high ASA. Um we if this was today and the persons we're interviewing, male or female, refused to answer them some of the most important questions that I ask, we just I would get up and leave. Because then it's a dead case. Yeah. And who cares, right? Yeah. You can't you can't trust the people what they're saying or doing. It's easier to avoid them. So anyway, Doris finally moved from Culver City. We lost track of her for a while. Frank Felita, who wrote the book and the screenplay for the movie The Entity, he found her because he had been talking with her a lot. We introduced him to her and to use the interview. And she was more openly open with him than she was with us. She talked about things that, you know, he was like a father figure to her. She was a very disturbed young lady. She was disowned by her family for being a little too rambunctious, a little too hectic and chaotic. And uh, yeah, she was not in a good place. So she finally moved. We found her a couple, about a month later in Carson, which is south of Culver City. Not a good area, but not terrible. So she moved in this house, and uh, the people on each side, neither her, none of her neighbors knew who she was. She never spoke of it. So we had not exposed her to, to the media. That would have been a disaster. She would have been a terrible witness. Um, okay, so go there suddenly things are being thrown around and then her neighbors who didn't even know who she was after she moved in they were having psychokinetic events they come out they come home all their garbage was dumped on the floor or plates were stacked up really high um it was amazing and you know go out there it's in my book i won't go into it take up too much time here but more phenomena happen then she moved to, I think it was Riverside or San Bernardino, and more phenomena there. And the last time I saw her, when she came back to LA to see a screening of the entity before it was released by Fox. And, um, you know, for all intents and purposes, things had happened. And then a friend of mine, Javier Ortega, who runs the site ghosttheory.com, interviewed, I think, one of her children. I forgot which one it was. And, um, in reading the interview, he must have contradicted himself a dozen times. Say one thing, then he'd say something else. Say one thing, and he'd say something else. Well, a druggie and an alcoholic. So, and then her other son seems to be functional, who with uh, Javier spoke to, but he didn't. He didn't really interview. Him. And her daughter is also a druggie, real bad. Drug. Jesus. So, that was the case, and no, and then. She died in supposedly in 1999 of cardiopulmonary failure. And why did her heart and lungs face fail? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, did, now, did what she we ever learn from Holly Ortega that long before she moved to Culver 
city she was living in, Monica, with her kids. Things are happening there, but at a much lower scale, much lower max frequency. And then she moved to Culver City long before we met her. And in, in a couple of weeks into the house, a little Hispanic lady comes to the door and tells her, you must leave this house, it's evil. And Doris goes, what? What are you talking about? Evil. Yeah. Wow. Um, so the case is dramatic. It was a very unique thing. But even the what's important to understand from a psychoanalytic perspective is that Doris claimed there were three valent two smaller ones and one bigger one. Smaller ones would hold her down and the bigger one would rape her. And she had three male children, two smaller, younger ones and one bigger uh, teenager. So you, know, you have to look at what was going on. I suspect there was some edible thing going on that she was, uh, we were seeing libidinous fantasies played out by Doris on a psychokinetic level. And you know, people don't understand that uh, there's almost no limit to what these phenomena can do in terms of the way they affect the environment. Um, moving things around, spontaneous combustion of matter, ports, things you know, disappear and reappear, um, knocking, scrapings, whatever. Um, we've had other cases like this, but nothing quite as severe as that. That was as intense as it's gotten because no one's ever told us that they were raped by a ghost other than Doris. What about the San Pedro case? That was pretty intense, too. The right? San Pedro case, I was called by a girl named Susan Costaneda. Uh, we go out there in August, I think, of 1989 with my colleague, Barry Conrad, who was a cameraman. It was very convenient. I knew him. Very great thing to work with him. And his, our friend, Jeff Wheatcraft. And then I brought some other people along. So we're going in the house, and it smelled just like the entity case, that horrible stench of decomposing organic wow. matter. Now, she was estranged from her husband, and she had a couple kids. And uh, she talked about disembodied voices, apparitions, the whole thing. And at one point, uh, we hear it sounded like a, um, like a 200-pound rat running around the attic. And of course, we go up there and there's nothing there. But as the case evolved, um, I wasn't able to go because my father had heart attacks. So I had to help my mom with things. So Barry went there with Jeff and uh, they heard the bang in the attic, the pounding. So Jeff goes up there with another friend of ours, Gary Bame. And he's looking around and, you know, and suddenly he lets out a yell like, ah! And Gary turned around, fires the camera because it was pitch black. And Jeff, there's a rope around, something tied around his neck. And Jeff's being picked up over by the rafter on a big bolt. That's crazy. And so if Gary Bame had been there, Jeff would have been strangled and died. That's so insane. <laughs> would have been a really weird. Now, the case is weird because it, it, in many ways it was similar to the entity case. In other ways, it wasn't. And as the case evolved, we uh, we were there. We got these weird lights Barry picked up on his uh, video cameras, seemingly roaming around the house that we couldn't see, but the camera picked them up. Um, it, 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 see what, this was on 11th Street in San Pedro. And uh, 
her house was a bungalow in back of the main house. And the case was so strange because, again, it was more connected with Jackie than it was with the house. Um, we were there so many times, it was sort of ridiculous. And there's only so much we could do. And you know, she really began taking a like to Barry Conrad. All the girls Barry and I met in her work, all the girls were attracted to Barry. Barry looked like a young Elvis. <laughs> so all the girls <laughs> went not to her. And um, I didn't particularly care for Jackie back then. She seemed sort of fragmented, dissociative, a little out of it, scattered, not, not grounded at all. But again, she was in a terrible situation, unable to take care of her kids and, you know, find a way to live and buy food and, you know, all that, pay rent. Um, the case, got, it, what, what gets really strange is um, at one point, um, uh, Jackie came to Barry's house, was there. He lived in the Studio City at the time. And uh, she left. And later in that day or in the evening, phenomena starts happening in Barry Conrad's apartment. Break glass breaking, things moving around on their own, banging noises. Um, suddenly, the stove, the burners of the stove turn on on their own, except there's no one there to turn them on. And box of matches with wooden matches were put on the stove right when the burners were on. It could have set the whole damn, you know, wow. apartment on fire. That's, that's nuts. Um, it's, and the whole thing was interesting because it's showing in a barrier. Jackie did not like Jeff. The reason she didn't like Jeff Wheatcraft, not because he was, wasn't a good-looking guy, she looked at him as a a wall to getting closer to Barry Conrad because he was always around, and Jeff didn't like Jackie at all. And she wanted Jeff to be rid of, wanted him to be gone. Who does phenomena repeatedly attack? Jeff. What a coincidence. This is where you have to play amateur psychoanalyst. This is an extension of Jackie's psyche. It goes after Jeff. Why? Well, and then she'd visited Barry's apartment several more times. And while she was there, and then after she left, phenomena again broke out in his place. Windows would be broken. It'd be broken outwards, not inwards. Lord. But there was nothing there to make the glass break. Um, now, then, I, then Jackie moves up to Weldon, which is you know, way, no, a couple hundred miles north of California. And uh, Jeff and Barry go to meet her because I couldn't go. I was still helping my mom and uh, with my father's health. So they're up there and things start happening. Uh, Barry Conrad produced a great video called An Unknown Encounter. Or also wrote a great book called An Unknown Encounter about the case. And they're up there and TVs turn on and they see faces coming on the TV, but it wasn't even plugged in, you know, large screen television. Um, they were That's up creepy. there having a little seance with Jackie and Barry and Jeff. And suddenly, Jeff is picked up, levitated right up. The chair drops down. He arcs up, hits the wall where it meets the ceiling. He's on the floor, and everyone oh thought Jeff was dead. And Jeff remembered something pressing his diaphragm, his stomach. And then he's down, on the floor. So the question is, why Jeff? Uh, since it was, you know, or, but who knows? But uh, at one time, um, we were doing a show, one of the shows, 
current affair or something. So on the show, I asked Jackie, what do you think of Jeff? She goes, I hate Jeff. And why do you, she goes, I just don't like it when he's around. I wish he'd just not come out anymore with Barry, Barry Conrad, that is. And so, what a good, so I said in the show, so you mean you wish something would remove Jeff to get rid of him? Yeah. So the producer says to me, so, so you think Jeff is haunted by this? I said, no, 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 no. It's not a ghost. It's a poltergeist. It's an extension of Jackie's psyche. She wants Jeff gone and the phenomenon keep attacking Jeff. What a coincidence. Willing to bet if we had measured, been able to do a medical workup on Jeff, which he needs to be prepared for, and it would be expensive, you know, at least, we would have found that he was seizure prone. And that's why the phenomenon linkage, the couplings with him, didn't happen to me. Um, did happen to Barry, but see, Jackie was staying at Barry's place on and off until another girl came by, then he threw Jackie out. So Jackie was getting set with Barry because letting instead of letting her stay there, they had a really nice apartment, two different apartments in in uh, Studio City. And uh, you know, not gigantic, but pleasant and spacious for one or two people. But you know, so it's what can you do? It's a long time ago. And uh then Jackie moved back to San Pedro and phenomena happened around her again in another apartment. And Barry Conrad was there and he caught these little balls of light zooming around and going into her head. What? Now this is where it gets really strange. So meanwhile, back at the original house on 11th Street, bungalow, um, new people move in who knew nothing about the case at all or about Jackie. And they too begin experiencing phenomena similar to what Jackie did. What a coincidence. Jackie leaves, the phenomena stays with her. New people go into Jackie's old home and they start having phenomena. So what does that suggest? But then news crews go there with their beta cams, whatever, charge, you know, they're, they're in charge. They go in the house and all the electricity fails because their batteries drop dead. They go out of the house, the batteries come back on. Wait a minute, so wait, wait, this doesn't make it wait till the phenomena st still in the house, but it stays with Jackie for a couple of years. This sounds like a contagion. Um, it's sort of like, Let's say you're, you and your wife are healthy, and you go visit some friends, you know, a couple miles away. Go out, hang. Go. Their kids are sick, but they're in the back, so you never touch them or see them. You're in the house, you're talking, blah 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 blah. Have somebody eat. Guys, go home. You then get sick, and you give it to your kids. You know what that is? It's called a vector pathogen. Okay, great. I got a feeling there's something almost identical to this happening regarding certain elements of paranormal, except. It's not biologic, it's energy. An energy of a type we don't know. And if it couples with you, because there's a resonance, it can leave with you, not leave with you, it, the same way you can carry a pathogen with you and get people to go to an apartment store or you go to a restaurant, you're sick and everyone around you gets sick even though they don't know you're sick. It could be, this is the same thing. It's a contagion. Wow. What I called in my book a psychovirus, for lack of a better name. And this is the only thing that makes sense because now to follow up on this, I worked in a case from 2005 to 6 in Beverly Hills in Benedict Canyon on Cielo Drive, a 
two doors down from where the uh, uh, Sharon Tate murderers happened. Back the in Dave Ruman house, right? So it's all written up on my website. There's two articles. One is called The Cielo Drive Convergence, uh, The Ultimate Tail Laboratory. There, there's Cielo Drive 2. Is that the, da- is that the David Ruman house? On the case. Something has been deleting all my photos, and I don't know why on my website. I put them up, they're gone. Even pictures that come from my own file. There's something has been going through my website deleting pictures. And it'll take a lot of time to go back and do it. I really feel like doing that right now. But anyway, um, worked in the case for a year, disembodied voices, luminous anomalies, reports, um, the whole thing. The house is relatively close to where I used to live. And that took me only a few minutes to get there. And uh, recorded geomagnetic field amplitudes are unlike anything I'd ever seen. Um, anywhere from 100, uh, that to, from 1,000 to a 2,000% increase you get normally. So one, in a, one end of the house was negatively polarized, the other was positively polarized. So the house was a giant magnetic battery. And it's in my, in my articles to go through the case in depth. But what's interesting is I got sick almost every time I was there. I had to go to the ER either the following night or in the next day because it made me really sick. And the doctors go, oh, you're at that house again. Well, if it makes you sick, why do you keep going? Because we're learning something. Yeah, and if you're dead, you'll learn even more. You know, you'll learn that you're not alive. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. <laughs> um and so, you know, I stopped going in July of 2006, and I kept track of people that came and went to the house while I was working there, people that knew David, whatever, and media, and all of them were younger than me. As far as I could determine, none of them had pre-existing conditions. However, 68% of them got sick while at the house, pains in the stomach, Pains in their head, uh, their joints, uh, uh, cardiac dysfunction, uh, nauseous. Um, it was just amazing. And I thought anything would be like a few percent, not three quarters of, not three quarters of a whole. You know, 68, well, two thirds, I should say. It's amazing. So I stopped going there because, you know, what good is it if I'm dead? It's not going to help me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then Zach Baggins wanted me to interview me there. I said, there is no incentive, monetary or otherwise, you can offer me that will get me go back to that house. What good, let's say he was going to buy me a new 918 Porsche, which was a million dollars. If I'm dead, can I drive it? Nope. <laughs> Absolutely not. Can I drive it? <laughs> nope. And who cares? Um, so he interviewed me at his hotel he was staying at in Hollywood. And uh, then, uh, I told him, you know, the case is amazing. And then uh, interviewed me again in Vegas. I, and David Oman came out there. And I thought, this but I haven't seen David in a couple of years. No big deal. He's still volatile. You know, nice guy, but volatile. Um, and, okay. So then, uh, oh, so after going to, stopped going to his house, a series of things happened around me and where I live. Suddenly, luminous anomalies, people talking, machines turning on and off, ports, a suit disappeared. One of my suits vanished, gone. Her shoes disappeared. I don't know. The medication arrived in a padded mailer, put it in the closet. I didn't need it yet. 
I go to the closet a few weeks later to start using it, the bag is gone, except I live there alone. So who took it? Um, um, I'm sitting there watching a movie with friends, and a red ball goes rolling, no, a blue ball goes rolling across the floor from where he is or I am. I go, what? What's that? I don't know. And then it rolls back to him. What is this? I don't know. Oh my God. <laughs> then they had a cutting board in the kitchen. They heard a big bang. It had been sliced in half, except both ends of it were fused. Good Lord. Yeah. And speaking of fused, the case I lived with my friend, I forgot to mention this, in Palm Desert. Before we had to leave, before we were evicted, uh, we left the house. And a couple of days before we left, the front door would could get it to open. So I examined with a magnifier, I looked to see the metal in the lock had melted and fused, meaning instead of being two pieces you can manipulate by turning a, a latch, Wow! it was one piece of metal. But that kind of heat should have set the door on fire. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible heat to, to melt but that. It, but it didn't. It was almost like the house didn't want us to leave. But there were two, three other ways, four other ways you could leave the house. We had to use those ways. And the owner said, why did you destroy the door? We didn't destroy the door. The lock melted. From what? I don't know. That's incredible. I mean, I have a laser that could have done it, but why would I melt the front door? Yeah. Catch it on fire. We live there. So what I'm getting at, anyway, so with the David, with the Ullman case, David Ullman case, the Yellow Drive case, um, and this is, again, a lot of this aftermath of the fallout will be in my next book. Um, like I came down my car once, I get in, and the seat belt is tied in a knot. But in order to do that, you would have had it dismounted from a latch point on the ceiling right near the window when you yeah. get in where the door is. Yeah. You would have had it taken that out, tied it in a knot, and put it back in. But that had not been done. How the hell did that huh? happen? Wow. Um, a, and then the best one was, I, I think it was in April of 2000. March or so the cleaning lady came by and so I waited for her, you know, comes in. So I said, okay, I'll get in the shower. So I go in the shower, I lock the door, I'm, you know, cleaning myself, and I hear banging on the door. Very, very, very. I can, what's the matter? She goes, I just saw you. I go, what? You at the computer. Yeah, I was when you arrived. No, 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 no. I saw you at the computer now. Wow. I went, what? I just I turned in the bedroom, start working there. And I see you with a computer in your bathrobe. No, I was in the shower. No, you weren't. You were in front of the How could you be both there and there? Uh, I don't know. By location. That's weird. And he freaked her. She started shaking and she had to leave. Okay. I paid her. Really did about half the job, but you know, she was freaking out. She had to lay down on the couch for like 40 minutes to calm down. <laughs> the question is, I was in the shower. She turns into my bedroom and she sees me there. And she called me a number of times and I didn't respond. It was the apparition or whatever it was at the at the keyboard when she called my name, did not react to her call, her voice. So what was it? Why did these things happen? I think the reason the house made me sick, the old drive case, was that my body was resonant with that energy and coupled with it. At the back of the house is a stairwell, a stairway that goes down. So you come in, you're at the ground level, and then as you go down, there's bedrooms and blah, 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 whatever. 
if the iron railing at the stairs, when I grabbed that, I'd feel a tingling go up my arm all the way to my neck, and it would go numb. Ooh. And we were getting, um, we were getting a couple thousand milligauss, which is ridiculous. Yeah. It can't happen. So the whole, again, it's the same thing over and over again. Um, the question is, what do we learn from this? Well, we learned this is a lot more complicated than we imagined. We've learned that we're at the center of all of it, that there's a, some linkage between our neurophysiology and the environment under the right condition. And this linkage can produce incredible events that don't make sense. Hence paranormal, now, right? <laughs> part, part. Hence paranormal, right? It's, it doesn't, it's something not normal. Yeah. You know? yeah um, in 1992, I was out in the case of Barry Conrad in, um, oh God, down, I don't remember my files in front of me, they're in storage right now. But um, it was a really nice Hispanic family, not that far from USC, and a really wonderful family. And they had a couple of kids, and nice two story home. And uh, so at one point, we're in the dining room. I'm in the dining room with, uh, I think Mary was in there, someone else, I forgot all the details um, in a while. And that room starts to violently shake. Well, we don't know what was causing that, but the problem was the rooms adjacent to it were not shaking, which is impossible. In other words, before that, there was a big marble dining room table in there. Would have needed four or five people to move. It was bouncing up and down like it weighed a milligram. Whoa, that's crazy. And and then the room started to shake. And yet the living room, the kitchen did not feel or react to the shaking of the living room. Just one isolated spot. Well, yeah, but I mean, that can't happen because everything's connected by wooden boards and planks and yeah. bolts. And so how can one room shake and the others not? Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Well, it's not sense. It can't happen. Yeah, it doesn't. It does See, this is where possible. it gets. This, yeah, this is where the whole thing makes no sense because there's something occurring in a reality that is beyond our understanding. And it seems to contradict what we believe about reality. Um, for example, we, I've had cases that these are in my book, will be more in my new book I'm writing now, that began as a poltergeist case and then turned into a CE3 or CE4 abduction. Ooh. Or began as an abduction and then had paranormal fallout afterwards. Uh, poltergeist activity, spontaneous healings, uh, out-of-body experience. Um, why? Well, I have a gut feeling that whatever UFOs are, whoever designed it, you know, control them, have access to knowledge and energy we don't know. And this knowledge and energy may be equivalent to what we call paranormal. Um, in my book, and it will be a more detailed case um, in my second book, 1977, on Valentine's Day, my colleague Carrie Gaynor and I went out to investigate a case in LA near um, near Wilshire and uh, um, Wilshire and Beverly Boulevard or Third Street. So I already talked to the woman who called me. So uh, show up at the case, and 
walk in and I saw what I thought was the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen in my life. She looked like Liz Taylor with darker eyes, very exotic, mm. my stereotype. So we were there, interviewed people, and her boyfriend, she was ex-boyfriend she was living with, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, okay. Then weeks later, she called me, we began talking, uh, she moved out, we got involved in a relationship, and uh, it was great. But then came the dream, and the dreams were always the same. Dreams were that of July 22nd, it was only, you know, March at this point, that relationship would end. Didn't know why, didn't know how, just knew what. I didn't tell her because I think I wanted to end the relationship, which I did not want to do. So I didn't say anything. And then, well, what's going on? You know? So more dreams. Didn't tell her. I'm not, I may be foolish, but I'm not stupid. So, okay, July 22nd. And you know, we were staying in her mother's condo in the Hollywood Hills. And uh, her mother was out of town or somewhere. And uh, now I wake up and my girlfriend, Judy, is under the covers. And she's sobbing, why didn't, I, why didn't you help me? I go, with what? When the room lit up, what room? The bedroom. What are you talking about? She said the room lit up. And then she was lifted up from the under, doesn't know what, visible, you know, she's just moving. And she went right through the wall into a, something, a round metal room that was glowing from light, that there were no lamps or lights. And uh, she was restrained at a table, a pedestal table, it was very cold and metallic. She strained at her neck, her abdomen, her wrists, and her ankles. And uh, they were little people around her, little with grayish reptilian skin, big black eyes, no ears, no nose. Um, she could hear them, but they weren't talking. You could see their mouths move and they were cutting her. And they said they won't hurt her, just don't worry about it. And she freaked out. Right? But she's still under the covers, and I said to her, you know, remember, this is 1977, so bear in mind the time. Um, you know anything about UFO abduction? She goes, what? What are you, what are you talking about UFO abduction? Another, had no interest in UFOs at all. She goes, no. But finally, in what, an hour and a half to coax her off one of the covers. She's bleeding from her nose, bleeding from her eye, bleeding from her ear, from her rectum, mm -hmm. and from her uterus, but she wasn't menstruating. Her hair had been cut, weirdly, and it looked like someone had taken chunks of skin out of her back with a little melon baller. Good God. And she had a complete breakdown. She never recovered. Had that not occurred, whatever it was, we probably would have been married in less than a year. Now, what's interesting, I was going down to the car later that day, and uh, one of the neighbors, I don't remember his name, some guy, said, did you see that? Thing last night, I go, what? It was hovering over the homes here. What's talking about? It's about two in the morning. It was big reddish orange thing. It was and killed the power in this area. And the power had gone out for two hours because oh, everything wow. was the clocks were set back two hours. Um, no. So does that mean that she was abducted? No. That means she wasn't. No. Had to make a bet. I'd say she was. Anyway, she had a complete nervous breakdown. Never recovered. Back in those days, psychiatrists 
psychologists wouldn't even deal with it. They assumed that if you made such claims, you were psychotic. So, wow. that, so the one time I could have gotten married, went up and, you know, <laughs> didn't work. <laughs> and people say, if it got close yeah. to marriage, yeah, what happened? My girlfriend was abducted by aliens, and she had a complete breakdown. Wow, that's crazy. So, you know, it's like, of all the girls I dated that had to occur with, why her? <laughs> you know, yeah, there are others that would have been much better because I knew it would go anywhere with me. <laughs> it's um, just, that sucks. Another thing, now, one other thing I want to mention, okay, this is talking about cases in the field that occur, you know, with phenomena you're out there investigating. Mm -hmm. The other area I worked at HCLA, I developed a, a learning program for ESP. And if you want to read about this, go to my website. It's called Learned Psy Training to be Psychic. And we found that by applying positive feedback in a learning paradigm method for accessing remote information, some people can be trained be really good at it others won't but it did work well enough that we kept doing it and some of the events were extraordinary in terms of what we did reveal we did this for years so thousands of sessions and um, bottom line was this um, sit in this in a century somewhat century deprived room at UCLA near the lab and uh, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face so one person will be a target. So let's say you showed up. We didn't know who you were, didn't know your name, but nothing about your life, your family. You say, think about someone you know really, really well, brother, sister, mother, father, cousin, whatever, someone you know really, okay. So then lights are out and we free association, free verbal response. People would say things that would be recorded on audio tape. So then we play the tape back, you play it back, you control it. And if the statement is accurate describing the person you were thinking of or yourself, stop and comment. If it isn't accurate, forget it. Okay. And we did this time after time, time after time, and it was amazing the results. It didn't work 100% of the time because nothing does, but it worked well enough where it, it blew us away. And early on in the program, people came to our lab. I didn't know who they were. Dr. Moss sent them to the, to the side training group. These were people from CIA, NSA, ONI, DARPA, uh, all these groups. And uh, they were dressed in civilian clothes, so we didn't know who they were. And one of the first times we did this, they described, described, this is the location, and the people describe what she sent. Okay, so we do it. And we started describing a submarine being built, something that was gigantic and had something called the Trident. And the details, I was going to details elaboration on this. And they're hearing this and they're freaking out, but they're not, you're not supposed to respond. When it was over, they said, we can't comment, but your accuracy was quite extraordinary. And they demanded that we give up, we surrender the audio tape we made because there was classified information we uttered. So I guess it worked. Yeah. They wanted to work with us. Okay, great. But UCLA would dare not put uh, uh, a linkage between the intelligence community and the military and the lab and UCLA and the NPI into a public forum because it would be public, it would be, you know, politically incorrect. It would be suicide for them. 
Yeah, and so crazy. they refused it. The work moved up the Stanford Research Institute. It came to that. But we still did the work at UCLA. It just wasn't linked to the government. And um, one of the most extraordinary sessions was uh, one where, uh, again, we got tired of the real-time ESB stuff. Boring. We've done it. Okay, we've done it again. Let's see if we can go precognitive. Okay, great. And uh, so describe the randomly chosen first target of next week. Okay. You don't know who or what it'll be. So dark room, it's black, describing. And we describe a tall, blonde, blue-eyed blonde woman. Very exotic, very like a model. Describe her clothing. Describe the chair she sat in, and each chair had a number under it, so which couldn't be seen coming in the room. And we described her, described a three-story home in the Hollywood Hills, described the David Graham piano. That could have been all coincidence, you know. And then we talk about a tall man, about 6'5", wearing a black, all-black clothing, black shirt, black pants, black boots, black gloves, black hat, black mask, black cape, and an imposing sword. Thought we were losing our mind. Okay, they recorded it. Next week, new people came in from third parties, and no one had been in our session the last month or so. And they come in, and each new person gets a fill envelope with a piece of paper and a number on it. We they sit down, we roll dice. We say, okay, open your package. Whosoever number in the piece of paper fits the dice roll. Oh, girl says, oh, that's me. Yeah, didn't know who she was. Here's a recorder. Here's a control. Play the recording. If it fits you, stop it. If it doesn't, let it go. Okay. So we describe her. Perfect hair, face, eyes, body, even her clothing. Okay. Could have been coincidence. Three-story home in the Hollywood Hills. That's where she grew up. Baby grand piano. They had a baby grand piano. Could have been coincidence. We get to the tall man in black with the sword. And she said, turns to me, she goes, you know, how do you know who I am? I go, what are you talking about? How do you know who I am? I go, I don't know what you're talking about. She goes, I'm Tony Williams. I go, and that is? My father is Guy Williams. He played Zorro for Disney. Whoa, that's cool. And I said, and I said, what? And she said, when did you make the tape? A week ago. But I just came here. I was randomly chosen. I I don't get this. I go, that's the problem. How could you proceed if the future of it is there? That's and nuts. it was the, one of the most extraordinary things because the probability of us guessing that was astronomical. Yeah. But yeah, the question is, it happened. a lottery. <laughs> and, you know, it's, all of it is amazing. Um, another, we tried it again a few weeks later with the pre-cognitive session. And all we kept feeling was, um, all we kept seeing was um, fire, fire, fire. So, well, we're losing our mind. So I'm up at the lab the next day, and uh, fire rangers are coming to UCLA to the building we work in, the, the old neuropsychiatric institute. And uh, the room we used for this research caught fire. Oh, wow. Whoa. <laughs> Apparently, there was a, a socket behind the curtain, and it sparked. It shorted, it sparked, and it caught the uh, grapes on fire. That's amazing, though. 
That's really, that's really amazing. So that's why all we saw it. We because it was imminent. That, that's um, amazing. You know, the whole, well, another time a, a girl who worked in the lab, I can't use her name, but uh, she, Dr. Moss, demanded that I let her come with the group. Okay. But, you know, she, I knew her. She was really weird, a lot of drugs. I said, I, I, um, I don't want to deal with these people. So she, okay. She came and came in. No one knew who she was other than me. And she gave us a name, first name. We start describing a big home, lots of foliage, big glass walls, um, and, the, and a kitchen lined with empty jars of bacon bits. I'll never forget this. And then we go into the talking about him being viciously beaten and mugged. And so we stop the thing, we play it back. And yeah, our description of the man was correct. Description of his house where he lived was correct. He did indeed have a large kitchen that had surrounded by empty jars of bacon bags. Could have been coincidence. Okay. So we get to the thing about him being viciously beaten and mugged. And you know, he's never been mugged. What are you talking about? No. Okay. So it was an interesting session. A couple of days later, I'm in the lab and she called. She goes, Barry, remember when I came to your group the other day? Yeah. Remember that what you said? I said, not really. And she said, but well, at the time she was in the group doing what we needed her to do. Her friend up in San Francisco was being beaten and mugged. Oh, whoa. She didn't know it. We didn't know it. So what's the source of the information? And this type of things happened on a regular basis, which suggested to us, not suggested, really demonstrated that this information is there. The past information still exists, the future's information still exists, and the information at a distance. Depending on where it appears to come from, we call it something different. If it comes from someone's mind here or there, oh, that's telepathic. From a distance, you're able to see it, no physical intervention that we know of. Clairvoyance comes from the past, retrocognition, the future, precognition. That means everything is everywhere. Yeah. The universe is sort of informationally like a giant hologram. The information may be equally distributed. This could be the most, one of the most significant discoveries in the history of human science. The only problem is we can't put, make use of it yet because we don't have a way to, to, to link it up with our technology, supposedly. Yeah. So this is what my work has been about. It's, I'll tell you what, it's, it's been some amazing work, Dr. Taff, I want to tell you. Too bad that they didn't keep the laboratory going at UCLA. Who knows what could have yeah. came about it, you know? Yeah, would have been nice, but nothing lasts forever. No. And one last, one last story. Um, before the um, – uh, the lab was up and running, and it was like in 2000, no, in 1978, 77, I had a – 78, I had a dream in the dream, we were all in the lab, Dr. Moss, myself, Carrie, John, other people that were there, and the head of the Neuropsychiatric Institute, Dr. Jolian West, comes in. We knew he didn't like what we were doing, no surprise. In the dream, he's telling us, I'm shutting you down, you people are full of shit, you gotta leave. Okay, great. That was the dream. But the dream didn't stop there. In the dream, the room starts to violently shake as if there's an earthquake and we're falling. 
And then we stop. What the hell, my God. And we look out of the window, which faced west. Labs with the face west. And instead of seeing clouds and whatever, the sky, we see a wooden plank. And there's a, a woman sitting on the plank. It looks like she's rotted away like a corpse. And next to her was a, a mangled German shepherd. Okay. And and Dr. Whitaker, oh, my God. I go, that's my sister. I go, what? That's my sister up there. And she's dead. What are you talking about? She died. How could that be her? This is the dream still. And that's her dog. The dog was killed before she died. It was it killed in her auto accident. Okay. That's the dream. And then that vision ends. We open the door. And instead of going up the hallway of the FBI, we there's wooden steps leading down the dark moisture with a little fog on like a horror movie. We turn back. The room is turned into a 19th century funeral coach with gas lanterns at each edge. And on the plank is this this mutilated or, or corpse. And she looked at us and I said, what's going on? Your reason I brought you, your dad, I'm going to bury you. And I went, what? <laughs> and I jumped up in bed, ripping in sweat. And I thought, this isn't good. We're either going to die in the lab or something else is going to happen. It was very volatile, very, very frightening. Long story short, um, a couple of weeks, months later, Dr. West comes in the lab and tells us he's shutting us down. So there's the dream. The lab died after Dr. Moss around the lab suggested to me. It was a modified version of reality that made it less painful. Um, okay, so shutting us down, no surprise. We knew we were on borrowed time to begin with. So I we walked out in the car. I said, Dr. West, can I speak to you for a moment? Oh, sure. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. You have a sister? He goes, I did. What do you mean you did? Well, she was killed. Oh, hi. She had cancer and she wasted away. Great, I thought. Then I said, did she have a dog? He goes, what? Did your sister have a dog? Oh, yeah. What kind of dog? German Shepherd. <laughs> what happened to her? The dog. Oh, he, he was killed in an auto accident. Good Lord, that's why he's mangled. Yeah. So within the dream of all the melodrama of a horror movie were, was the essence of what was going to happen. The lab as an entity would die. Not, you would not die as an earthquake. Yeah. So my life has been a little different than most of them. Oh, um, well, to say the least. I've been able to have <laughs> great experiences, meet incredible people and and it's only a fraction of the story. This would go on. We could talk for months on this. Oh, I love it. But, I love it. <laughs> but the bottom, bottom of this, the essence is that we know more now than we did 50 years ago. A lot more. And what we know now is more disturbing because it tells us of a reality that we're integrated with. We're not separate from it. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. That's totally amazing. Yeah. So anyway, that that's my life in a nutshell. <laughs> I tell you what, you're like the uh, the Godfather of the paranormal. I want to tell you that. <laughs> no, 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 Godfather, just someone who's been in the right place at the right time. But uh, the other, the negative end, that in society, when people are different, they're looked at in a different way. Let's say you're an actor, you're an you're an athlete, you're a famous writer, director, producer, uh, an actor. Like I said, you're an artist, you're a you're a scientist who won a Nobel Prize. You're, that's part of society we understand. 
But if you're different in a way that's unlike the way other people are different, people don't look up to you, they run away from you. It terrifies them. If I had a dollar for every person who's freaked out around me, I'd be very wealthy. <laughs> in terms of relationships, it's been hell. Either the women think I'm crazy, which I can understand given my background, or the woman makes me look normal. <laughs> so I uh, remember when I worked with Dr. Moss, originally she did a study on me, which was published in a medical journal back in the mid-70s. Okay, so you're psychic, but who, what, how, and why? That's the problem. So I've met great people, incredible experiences, but makes you stand out in my in my uh, in my new book there'll be a chapter called just a little different and that's what it's about is that uh, I tell people I'm a little different than people around you and the one thing I'm known for now is that I'm a medical intuitive that I can diagnose people that are near me by looking into them it's cost me relationships and friends and, but you know, it's it's x-ray vision uh, without being tall with dark hair and blue eyes. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. That really is. Well, I'll so, tell you what. Uh, thank you for coming on tonight. That's I definitely appreciate it. Uh, I definitely look up to all the stuff that you've done, and yeah, uh, I just I just find it all amazing. All the stuff that you've done over the years. It's it's incredible. It really yeah. is. If people want to learn, read about the medical dude of stuff, which we really didn't discuss in any depth, any depth here. Go to my website and read the article called A Different Kind of Psychic, Being a Medical Intuitive. And it goes into great detail of what happened, things that have happened. And um, it's, you know, it's uh, one quick end thing. Um, in 1999, an old girlfriend dropped by. I hadn't seen her in decades. Looked great. No lines, no wrinkles, no fat. Fantastic. We're outside talking. It was warm. She's wearing a halter top. And I'm talking to her, and I said, it was um, Linda. Linda, what's all over your upper chest? What? It looks like a jellyfish. I went up to her, I said, oh, it's not on you. It's in you. you better go see an oncologist. Your breasts are riddled with tumors. They were. Oh, wow. She had to have a double mastectomy. Oh, Jesus. And so, um, and then one earlier case, in 73, a girl I met in the lab, we were dating, we were in her place talking, and I said, you have a tumor in your left breast. And I showed her where it was. She goes, what, what, what tumor? How do you know? What are you talking about? There's no tumor. How do you see it? I go, it's benign. How do you know? There's no calcium. What are you talking about? So a few weeks later, she finished her degree, got a job with a major company, did a, did a full medical workup for insurance purposes. They found a lump where I said it would be. She didn't tell them. It was tumor. It was benign. They took it out. And that was the end of the relationship. Wow, that's incredible, though. I mean, that for someone to be able to do that, have that kind of ability, that's that's pretty incredible. Well, it's it's different, and uh, with my happened with my parents didn't believe it. A lot younger, and my mom. This is like in my late teens. She goes, "Well, Dad's got it. You know, my dad, her husband, has a problem. Can you tell us?" Oh, sure. I said, "Is it visibly discernible?" She goes, "No." So he sits next to me on the couch, and I said, oh, you have a hiatal hernia. My mom goes, you guessed. I said one thing. Not five, but then I said one thing. Um, 
And the weirdest part is where I've been able to do this remotely, meaning in 2000, late 2014 or early 15, I met a girl online. She looked exactly like a young, um, uh, uh, what's her name, Joan Collins. They're almost identical. About 30 years younger than me, blah, blah, blah. We talked. I finally spoke to her. And while we're talking, I'm looking at her pictures on her on Facebook. So I said to her, look, I have to ask you a question. You don't have to answer if you don't want to. Okay. I said, you look sickly. You're beautiful, but you look like you've been sick. She's been sick her whole life. She told me one thing after another. Ter terribly. How did you know? So I'm looking at you. But you're not here. So I don't know. Looking at your pictures. So, you know, it's too bad this hasn't worked out. You know, yeah. I could have done this at a professional level because I'm not a medical doctor. Yeah. I have a PhD, I don't have an MD. Yeah, I mean, so, that's, that's again, I think kind of studies, you know. It creates problems. Yeah, I mean, that kind of stuff needs to be studied. You know, people have that kind of ability. Yeah. Yeah, it was, and people get to a point where they freak out and they want to just get away because they're frightened of what I'll tell them. So it's sort of like you thought that being Superman, having X ray vision would be good, good. Two point, yes. Another point, no. You scare the hell out of people. Yeah. Um, the girl I saw the tumor in, she said, I feel like a piece of glass around you. I can't be around you. You scare the hell out of me. What are you going to tell me tomorrow or the next day? But I helped. She goes, I don't want that help. Jeez. <laughs> wow. So anyway, that's the story. Wow, that's incredible. It's still incredible. I mean, everything you've done is pretty much an incredible journey that you've been on for the last what fifty right. plus years of investigating right. and I mean it's just amazing. Long time ago. Yeah. Are you still doing anything currently? No, not my car. My instruments are on LA. I almost died in two thousand fifteen. I'm loving not in LA, I'm living in immaculate now and i don't know where i'm going from here so i'm not doing any research now. I mean, things still happen at the place i'm living at the third floor happens to be haunted what a coincidence yeah <laughs> yeah right because you're there right? so, and, I, <laughs> and i'm on the third floor so <laughs> you're like the the magnet to it you know? <laughs> right. listen i appreciate you bringing me on the show definitely i had a great and, time uh, just listening, just, there, just listening to your stories are just, uh, um, you know, I've been amazed listening to all yeah. your stories. Even watching, the, you know, watching the movie Entity when I was a kid. I, I remember when it came out, I was yeah. like 10. You know, I'm almost 50 now, so yeah. it's been yeah. that long, long ago, wow. you know. I'm like, wow. I'm talking to the guy who did this case, you know, which was amazing right. to me, you know. Mm -hmm. and yeah. I definitely appreciate you coming on the show, Dr. Tess. So, oh, wow. um my pleasure. I'd love to have and, you back uh, again sometime. We'll talk in the future sometime. Yeah, okay? definitely, definitely. Uh, hold on, hold on the line, and uh, I'm just going to talk to you one second after we're done here. Sure. All right. Well, folks, that's it for tonight. Uh, you were you're definitely listening to Doctor Taff, one of the uh, premier paranormal investigators that's been around forever. I mean, the guy's done over 4,000 cases of poltergeist hauntings. I mean, you name it, he, this guy's done it. So, And you heard him tonight. So thank you guys for tuning in and uh, talk to you again real soon. The party's over. 
It's time to call it a day They've burst your pretty balloon And taken the moon away It's time to wind up The masquerade Just make your mind up The piper must be paid The part is over The candles flicker and dim You danced and dreamed through the night It seemed to be right Just being with him Now you must wake up All dreams must end Take off your makeup The party's over It's all over 